Happy Easter, everyone. It's great to see you here this Easter morning. Great to celebrate Jesus risen from death. I'm going to read some verses to you, verses that would have been read already today many thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of times around the world. I heard them on the radio early this morning. Uh, no doubt these are words which are familiar to you. Um, even if you don't know much about the Bible, to be honest, I'm sure you've heard these before. These will be the kind of things that people read uh, in meetings like this on Easter Sunday. So these words come from Luke's Gospel, uh, Luke chapter 24, and the first few verses of that chapter. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners to be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Let's ask God to help us to understand his word. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is so relevant to us, just thousands of years after the events took place. Thank you, Lord Jesus, you've given us your word to instruct us, to encourage us, to warn us, to bring us hope. And Father, I pray that as we look at your word today, as we consider the things that happened all those years ago, Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit's power, would you breathe that same life into us that raised Jesus from the dead? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So here on Easter Sunday, we're faced with this story. We're faced with this issue that faces all Christians, and it has for all time. The, face, the, the central part of this Easter story, which is that Jesus rose from death to life, that Jesus was dead and then he was alive again. And that's why this church was built, that's why this congregation meets, that's why uh, around the world millions, maybe billions of Christians are celebrating this fact today, that we believe that a dead man came back to life and that God did it. And that, that's, that's the plain fact. And, and here we are saying this in 21st century Bristol. And we need to think about that because when we are, are preaching and teaching people about Jesus and when we're telling our friends and neighbours and families about this, this is what we need to believe. This is absolutely fundamental and crucial. You can't be a Christian unless you believe this. You can't be. I, I was at school and one of my teachers at secondary school said, well, I like, I like the morals of the Bible. I, you know, I'll go with the morals of the Bible. I like all that stuff but you can keep all the rising from dead to the dead stuff. You're like, well, kind of even I back then knew you can't separate the two. You can't have one without the other. You know, Jesus, actually C.S. Lewis said it of Jesus. You know, either he was a monster telling people he was God or he was a lunatic believing that he was or he was who he said he was. You can't have it both ways. You can't have a nice, happy story with a dead man raising to life and saying that has implications for your life. You can't. You can't have it both ways. And so here we are having to face this issue. We would need to consider this fact, Jesus risen to life, because we base our lives on it. I've based my whole life on this fact. At the age of four, as a very young child, I heard someone preach just like I'm going to preach now. 
and I recognized I didn't know God. I didn't know him, and I knew even then that I needed to. Now, I came from a Christian family. We can have all the arguments you like about what that might or might not do for you, but I knew that fact. I knew it, and I knew also that when I asked Jesus to forgive me, I knew that he did. I knew it, and I've known it every day since. Now, some days are difficult. Some days are easier, but I have known that truth every day since. I've known the truth of what these dear ladies were it was dawning on them. This was, this was what was happening here in this story. My goodness. I do remember something that Jesus said about that. They really didn't have much of a clue, to be honest. And the story as it unfolds tells us that. They really didn't understand the things that Jesus had taken great pains to teach them all these three years. If you're a teacher, that gives you some hope, actually. <laughs> but they were later to understand. And they're beginning to understand what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about a defeat of the kind of political powers or the Roman invaders. He was talking about a whole new way of being and living. He was talking about a life that would pour out from him through the whole universe, actually, that would change potentially everyone and all things for all time. And he was saying, this can be yours. This life that pours out from this grave, from this moment, could be yours. He's offering it to us. But we need to consider this point. The Bible itself knows it's a key point. It doesn't pretend, it's like, well, yeah, we, we, we have to believe in a, in a dead man rising to life, you know. Obviously, that's a difficult one. It doesn't, it doesn't pretend it's not difficult. And in fact, Paul writing to the church in Corinth says this, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So that's you and me today, actually, isn't it? Paul knew the, the weight upon the question. He knew the importance of the issue. Can't pretend it's not important to believe this. And actually, uh, in Romans, Paul writes this. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess faith and are saved. Paul says it's so fundamental, it's, it's, what, it's, it's, it's intrinsic in actually becoming a Christian, in, in, in salvation itself. You can't have salvation. There is no Christianity without a risen Jesus. It just doesn't exist. And the Bible knows it, and it's very clear about it. And that's what we've read here. It's very clear. You can't have Christianity without a risen Jesus. You can't talk about the sort of the raisedness. You can't say, well, isn't it like a metaphor for, you know, new life, like when plants, you know, pop up in the spring? Isn't that really what, isn't that really what's happening here? And that's why, we, you know, we have bunnies and tulips and, you know, why do we have a, an Easter bunny and an Easter egg? So, there's some biological problems with that. No, really? It's like, why is it not an Easter chicken? And a, it, anyway, you can, you can debate that over lunch. But it's not a metaphor like those things are. It's a real thing, and it needs to be a real thing. And Christians believe this, and base their lives on it, and give their money to the propagation of this truth, and make decisions about who they're going to marry, and what they're going to do for their job, and where they're going to live, and maybe how they're going to die, based around this truth, that Jesus rose to life. But it is, no doubt, something of a dilemma because it's kind of a fact, isn't it? Dead people don't rise to life. 
That's it. It's over, isn't it? Isn't it over when people die? Isn't that the end? Surely we know that. Many doctors and nurses amongst us. Surely we know that's, that's a fact, isn't it? Well, the Bible here is trying to tell us something beyond just the scientific facts of life and death. Trying to tell us something about the nature of God and his creation and what he will bring about in a new creation. The Times a few years ago published a survey, a survey of 2,000 British adults. And in that survey, it found that of those 2,000, 31% of the Christians uh, surveyed believed in the Bible's account of resurrection, which is a bit of a worry if only 31% of the Christians believe it. But anyway, we'll leave that. But that rises to 57% of Christians who regularly attend a meeting like this. So kind of saying more than half of those who regularly attend meetings do believe in the, the biblical account of the resurrection. And overall, what's interesting is that 46%, almost or close to half of everyone, Christian or not, who were interviewed, believed there was something more than just this life. Nearly half of everyone interviewed just a few years ago by the Times said, yeah, we believe there's more to life than just what I can see and what I can hear. And in 21st century Britain, that's interesting. Something for us to consider. The Washington Post goes a little bit further. It says this about the resurrection. Um, more scholars, and most scholars agree that the tomb of Jesus was empty shortly after his death. Most scholars agree. Most people who study these things say, yeah, it, was, it seems that's the case. Now, what we need to do is to look at that moment and say, what, what, what was happening? What happened there? What could have happened? What arguments might there be for a raise to Jesus? Such is the importance of the issue. What we do know about that moment, that key moment in history, that key moment in the Bible narrative is this, that the religious authorities, those people who wanted to get rid of Jesus in the first place, they were really concerned because they knew Jesus had made claims about what he was going to do after he died. And so they, they were really concerned that they, the disciples wouldn't come and sort of steal the body and make up something about him being raised. They were very concerned about that. They wanted to make sure that couldn't possibly happen. That they finally got rid of this wretched Jesus who they really didn't like. He was stealing the limelight. He kept healing people for goodness sake. And, and anyway, they got rid of him and they get him in a tomb and now let's just make sure that's the end of it. That's what they wanted now, they were the ones who wanted to maintain that kind of status quo. They wanted life to carry on as it was. The religious leaders liked the fact that they were well, that well, well kind of thought out about in society. They had a, a, a good prominent position. They made good money from being these religious leaders. And Jesus came along and upset the whole thing. He said, no, you can know God. You don't need to go through a priest. You don't need all these rules. You can know me now. And it just disrupted everything. And they hated it. And so this is what they did. In Matthew 27, we read this. <clears throat> the next day, the day after preparation day, the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate. They went to the authority figure. Sir, they said, we remember what that while he was alive, this deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. Give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. It's got to be an odd job, isn't it? You know, guarding a dead person in case they, you know, come out. It's not, 
not, not a, you know, you don't get many of those job descriptions or, you know, jobs advertised, you know, come guard the cemetery, we're just a bit worried, you know, who's coming out. But that's what they were told to do. Put a seal on it and guard it. Make it as secure as you know how. Roman soldiers sent to guard this tomb. They also knew that this moment was key, it was pivotal. They wanted to stop it, that's it. And do you know what? If that had been it, we wouldn't be here today. This church would never have been built. You know, the Bible would have been just another book. Maybe it wouldn't have even got written, probably. Some dusty shelf somewhere. And yet here it is, the most popular book in all, all history. Here we are in a building that's built to glorify a risen Savior, talking about these things here. So maybe they didn't succeed in their scheming. So the tomb was guarded, and yet the next morning it was empty. So was it the disciples? I guess that's the question. That's what they thought. That was the plan. That's what they were worried about. Was it the disciples? Was, were these some, this devastated group of disciples who really didn't even understand what Jesus was talking about for a lot of the time they were with him, and certainly not about his death and resurrection? Did they somehow... The fact they'd scattered, you know, Peter had denied that he'd known Jesus. All these things had happened. They'd really run away pretty much at this stage. Did they, on that very night when all their dreams had come unstuck, when they thought it was all over, they had such hopes for this Jesus. And as far as they knew, it was over. Did they somehow find each other, put themselves together, this kind of crack commando squad of disciples. I mean, do we know? Have you read anything about the disciples? Hardly a crack commando squad. Take over, you know, somehow take over these guards, you know, beat them up, I don't know, break the seal, get in. Did they, are we supposed to believe that they did that? It seems extremely unlikely that this group of devastated individuals, just in their dear friend, crucified and buried, would somehow put it together to come and release this body and steal it away and claim something had happened. Let's read a little bit more in Matthew 28. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went to the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. That is, we got up and Jesus' body was gone. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, You are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. So they're kind of sticking with their original plan. That's what we're going with that plan. Let's stick with that plan. Now they're paying off the soldiers to say this is what actually happened. If this report gets to the governor, he will be satisfied and keep keep him out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated amongst the Jews today. So they'd stuck with their plan. But what do we deduce from this? We've got a serious problem with a guard that you know, would have been awake all night, a seal on the tomb, and then a, a body gone in the morning. That's a, that's a serious problem. And then we have a problem with the fact that it seems the disciples couldn't possibly have stolen the body because they were utterly devastated and they'd scattered. All their dreams had ended as far as they knew in that moment. And then you have this kind of scheming plan from, uh, from the religious authorities to, to propagate the fact that no, actually he was stolen but what you have, whichever way it is, is you have an empty tomb. Either way, the tomb's empty. And we still have to deal with that. So let's just say, let's just 
let's just say that the disciples did manage somehow to gather themselves together to overcome the guard, to overcome their own deep heartache and steal this body. Let's just say that's what happened. It would mean this. It would mean that the disciples collaborated in a lie that they knew was a lie, which sent most of them to their premature deaths, to torture. It was not in their advantage to have Jesus raised. If they knew it, it didn't happen, then they actually put themselves through incredible turmoil for the rest of their lives. Most of them, as I say, reached premature deaths, and they went to their death. Not one of them denied that this was the truth. Not one of them denied. We'll, come, we'll circle back to that a little bit later on. Of course, it also flies in the face of everything that Jesus had taught them in the three years he was with them. He taught them about goodness, about honesty, about, about doing what was right, even if it meant opposition would come your way. He taught them all those things and did, took great pains to do it. And now, in this moment, they're, de- they're denying him by stealing his body and telling a lie to the whole world. Again, it seems incredibly unlikely. And then we have Jesus' own brother, James. Now, James wrote one of the books of the New Testament just near the end of the New Testament. And James was one of the prominent leaders in the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem went on after Jesus' death and resurrection to be a very large church, tens, maybe 10,000, maybe more. And James led that church. But James didn't always believe. Let's read what uh, the writer Charles Swindle says about James. A study of James' life provides some important lessons for us. His conversion gives testimony to the overwhelming power that came from being a witness to Christ's resurrection. James turned from being a skeptic to a leader in the church based on his meeting with the resurrected Jesus. James' speech at Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 reveals his reliance on Scripture, his desire for peace within the church, his emphasis of, of grace over law, his care for Gentile believers, although he himself ministered almost exclusively to Jewish Christians. Also worthy of note is James's humility. He never uses position as Jesus' blood relative as a basis for authority. Rather, James portrays himself as a servant of Jesus, nothing more. In short, James is a gracious leader through whom the church was greatly blessed. I've got two sisters. Trying to convince my two sisters that I was the son of God. Just think, have you got, have you got siblings, brothers and sisters? To try, how, how would you go about that? <laughs> what would the conversation be like, you know? How would you convince them? I, I, I couldn't convince them of anything. They know me so well. And yet here is Jesus' own brother, his blood relative, James, turning from a skeptic to a believer to a prominent leader in the church based on the fact that he believed his brother was the son of God. He believed that his own flesh and blood believed him. I couldn't, I couldn't persuade my sisters to do almost anything. I could be quite persuasive. This is an incredible piece of evidence for us to consider. Maybe, maybe, maybe the most compelling of all that he considered himself a servant of his brother because he believed his brother was raised to life and that he'd met with a resurrected Jesus, the Son of God. 
And finally, there's one more, there's just one more issue we need to consider. If we have a stolen body and a fantastic lie, and we have a bunch of followers of Jesus who are now trying to create a credible story. They're trying to tell a credible story of Jesus' death and resurrection. That, well, there's a huge problem with that. There's a, a huge problem with the way they went about that, if that's what happened. If they were, if they were just making up this story, then they, they just made a cataclysmic error in, what they, in the way they described it. And I'll tell you, there's times have changed, but they told a story about the first witnesses, the first people, and we read about it, the first people to witness Jesus were women. And times have changed, and thankfully they have. But in Jesus' day, women were not considered credible witnesses. They were seen uh, as being intellectually and morally deficient. So they were just not credible. It would not be believed. So if you were making up a story that you wanted people to believe, you would not put women as the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. You put one of the prominent disciples, or maybe Peter or or John or someone as their first, uh, kind of the first witness, you would not put women in. In fact, let me read this. Embarrassment is one of the standards historians used to gauge the historicity of a recorded event. If the author chooses to include an embarrassing fact that might hit, hurt his or her case, it is unlikely that he is making up the story. The fact that the gospel writers included the embarrassing details of women being the witnesses to the empty tomb shows the unlikelihood of the empty tomb narratives being fabricated. It just isn't credible that they would choose women to be the first witnesses. Why then did they? Well, because they were trying to give an accurate account, just like they'd been taught by Jesus to be honest and truthful, to trust God, to follow him wholeheartedly, because they were telling the truth. That's why. That's why. Then we have back to the Apostle Paul, we have this, for what I received, he writes in 1 Corinthians, what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. So when Paul writes that to the church in Corinth, what is he saying to them in his letter? He's saying, there are people who are alive now who are witnesses to this. First hand, saw it. What he's saying to them is, go talk to them. He said, you don't have to take my word for it. Go find the first hand witnesses and ask them. Now, if he was just part of a fabricated fact, he'd want them as far away from anyone that could tell a different story than he possibly could. But he is not afraid He's not ashamed. Why? Because it happened. He says, go ask them. Go ask these people. They're still alive now. Go find them. You ask them. You quiz them all you like. You're going to find this story is accurate and true. C.S. Lewis said this about the Christian faith. Christianity, if it's false, is of no importance. If true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Can't have it every which way, as we said earlier. That passage we started with, the angels said to the women who'd come to the empty tomb, they said this, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you looking in a tomb for someone who's alive? It's just the wrong place to look. You're looking looking amongst the dead. You're looking for... 
why are you looking here? Did you know he would be alive? Did you know death couldn't hold him? He told you so many times. And of course, they met the risen Jesus. But that question kind of tumbles down through the ages to us this morning. And it tumbles to you and to me. It says, are you looking for life in the wrong place? Are you looking in the wrong place for life? Are you, what are you looking for? Where, are you, where do you think you're going to find life? Where do you think you're going to find answers? You can look to all kinds of things in all kinds of places. They thought they'd find answers in a tomb. They thought, well, we'll do the best we can for this dead thing now. It's over. We'll come and put spices on his body. We'll do the right thing, but it's over. Are you looking for life in places that, where it's just over? Are you looking for it in, in work? Are you looking for it in relationship? Are you looking for it in money? Are you looking for it in all kind of taking a position of authority. Where are you looking for life? We're all doing it. Are you looking for it in pleasure? Are you looking for it in, kind of, in comfort? Where are you looking for life? Where do you think you're going to find it? Is what you're actually doing, are you gazing into a tomb and hoping you might find life there? When actually Jesus is he's somewhere else. The real life that is life has broken out from a tomb. And we can spend, even as Christians actually, we can spend our lives gazing into dead things, hoping they'll give us life. Hoping somehow we'll find meaning in this thing, or meaning in this thing, or hope here. Where, where is hope? Where is it? And what God is saying to us, no, you have life, and you can find life in the risen Jesus. You can find it in him today, right now. I said, as a child, I prayed the simplest prayer. Save me. Say, will you have me, Jesus. You can pray such a simple prayer. Ask him. He won't turn you down. He won't reject you. In fact, from all the arguments we could make and whether you've been convinced by the arguments I've made, I, I don't know. But actually, you can meet the risen Jesus just like these ladies did. These dear ladies came out of the tomb and there they, wow, he's alive. He's alive. Can you just imagine that? You thought it was all over. You thought that's it, it's ended. And suddenly you find life breaks out. That could be true for you right now. You thought, wow, I just have to struggle on through my 70 years and 10 or whatever it might be. That I'll just somehow have to find, hope one day I'll find some sort of meaning. Well, here in this story is where meaning is found. Here is where life is found. And it's not in a grave. It's not on a cross. It's in a risen Jesus, conquering death offering you so you can have life and life in all of its fullness C.S. Lewis again said this that the death and resurrection of Jesus it caused death itself to start working backwards what a wonderful concept that all the things that all, like age and death all those things they start working backwards for those of us getting on in years that's a wonderful thing it's a wonderful thing to realize death is working the opposite way that we always thought it would be working why? Because Jesus has conquered death. And he says, come and join me in the life that really is life. I'm just going to finish with a quote from a guy called Charles Colson. Now, Charles Colson was an American politician caught up in the Watergate scandal back in the 70s. And he said this about the resurrection. I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. They then proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it, 
Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate scandal, do you remember? Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep that lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And the invitation this morning is that band are going to play a song for us in a moment, is to come to the one who's offering life. Don't look for life in the wrong places. Don't expect to find it amongst the dead. You find it in one who has conquered death, Jesus himself. The simplest prayer can give you access to the eternal God. He embrace you. Ask him. Just ask him. It does take humility. It does take humility. You can do it in the quiet of your heart, the quiet